You're listening to a sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Niagara. We believe in unapologetic preaching, unashamed adoration of Jesus, unceasing prayer, and unafraid witness. Thank you for listening. Well, good morning, Harvest. It's uh, good to see you, good to be uh, with you. As uh, you heard earlier, I'm the uh, lead pastor of at Harvest Barry, and we were indeed the first harvest uh, here in Canada about uh, 16 years ago. And it's great to be uh, in fellowship with you guys, in partnership with you, and uh, we uh, have a lot in common. I think Barry and St. Catharines, I think we feel an affinity towards your church because our cities are very similar, same population. We uh, are both uh, close to a nice tourist area. You have Niagara, we have the Muskokas, and uh, uh, we're both similar distances uh, from Toronto on the go line, so we can go there, but we don't have to stay. We can always come back. And so that's awesome. And, um, and then we have such a, a good friendship with uh, your pastor and his wife, Daryl and Ruth, are really good friends of ours. We have a lot in common. We connect really well with them. And the best uh, part of the Daryl-Ruth uh, combo is, uh, is clearly Ruth. Uh, she is, uh, and I say that because she's a vrai Quebecoise, and that's, uh, that puts her in a whole different category. Love that about her for sure. Uh, so uh, good to be with you, good to be able to share this uh, time uh, with your church. And as we get into God's Word, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 12, 1 and 2, and uh, some folks are at the back with Bibles in their hands, and if you don't have a copy of God's Word and you'd like one, they'd love to put one in your hand. So just raise your hand right now and they'll get, get one to you. We're going to be in Hebrews 1 and 2, and uh, very familiar verses, uh, verses that uh, I appreciate so much, and I'm, I'm happy to be able to spend some time uh, in these verses with you. But it, it all relates to kind of a little part of our history that you may or may not know about as a church. And uh, we got uh, started, again, uh, 16 years ago. Uh, we celebrated our 16th anniversary in September. And um, on our 16th anniversary, we also celebrated getting into our first building. So that's both celebration and you're, you're doing the math going, boy, I hope it doesn't take us 16 years. I, I, can, I can hear that in your reaction. Um, and, and I hope it doesn't take 16 years for you because you guys just celebrated your sixth anniversary. That'd be another 10 years of this. And, uh, and so this is not a bad place to me, but it'd be great to have your own place, right? And so the only way that happens is people catch the vision and they continue to give generously toward finding a place because uh, it's just not cheap. Anyways, we're enjoying the benefit of having a building after 16 years of setting up and tearing down and being in schools. And uh, so we got into this, this building and um, it was a, um, a banquet hall. It was a, a veterans hall with four different banquet uh, rooms in it and uh, good size. And like literally over the 40 years that this building was uh, part of this veterans group, um, the tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of people from our area were in and out all the time for weddings and trade shows and business meetings and dances and so on and so forth, all these different activities. And so people are very, very curious about our building when we moved into it because we did extensive uh, reconstruction and renovations of it. And uh, so we... Um, we had lots of guests coming from the time we got into the building in mid-August. Our grand opening was in September. We just saw hundreds and hundreds of people come through. We were getting, on average, about 20 or 21 uh, guest units who were just coming into Guest Central. So we know we had even more guests than that who didn't come to meet us. But um, guest units would be like an individual couple or a family. So literally hundreds of people um, coming to see us. And a lot of them were just curious about the building. And among them was this one woman who also... Um, 
from the community. I don't think she had any particular connections to our church, but she was curious about it. And she asked to have a meeting with me as well. And uh, so we arranged a time at the office and she came by. And I, I would describe her as a person who's just very interested in faith, but not quite there yet. And there might be some people here today, you're like that. You're interested in faith. We have people like that that we know in our lives. They're interested in faith, but they're not quite there yet. And I would describe her as this. And as we sat down, the very first thing she said to me, she just wanted to make it super clear The very first thing she said to me was, "Um, I'm not super comfortable with how freely you talk about Jesus. Now, I appreciate her honesty. Don't you appreciate her honesty? To just like front load that right away. To say, I'm not super comfortable with how freely you talk about Jesus. And and I want to say, if if you're here today and you're in that category, that's awesome. Harvest Berry is a lot like Harvest Niagara in that way. That We we welcome people to be on the journey and asking questions and come with your doubts and uh, come with your questions and have all of those right here and be on the journey and and learning and growing in all of that. And we hope you come to a point where you would uh, come to faith in Jesus Christ. But it's okay to be here. But please understand, if that's you, if you're saying, I'm not super comfortable with how freely you talk about Jesus and sing about him and preach about him and all of this, um, if that's you, then please understand, you've kind of come into our house today. And the reason why we talk so freely about him is because of how profoundly he's changed and impact our lives. I mean, he's our everything. He's our life and he's our breath. He's not only our spiritual life in the sense that he's given us an abundant life here and eternal life later, but he's given us our physical life and he sustains us and he blesses us in so many remarkable ways. And that's why we talk so freely about him because he's, he's just awesome. He's just awesome and we would hope that you could come to an understanding of all of that as well as we lift high the name of Jesus in this place. And so this message is in part for those who don't have Jesus yet, but the largest part of this message is for those of us who are believers to, to also focus on Jesus, to bring us back to that because it's so easy for us, even as I say that, we talk freely about him, he's our everything. It's so easy for us, even as the followers of Christ, professing faith in him, to get off track sometimes and to make life about me, to make life about us, to become self-focused and self-centered and consumed with what's going on in my life that our sights can be pulled off of the thing that they should be on, which is Jesus Christ, our eyes on him because this is all about him. And so that's where Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 goes. In fact, in verse 2 of that, and I'm going to cite the NIV here because I like the word better, we're going to be encouraged here, we're going to be commanded really to fix our eyes on Jesus, to gaze at him, to get our focus off of everything else, and to get our focus firmly on him. And that's the only way for two things to happen that are so critical to this message and really our lives. The first one is, I want to please the Lord. And so fixing my eyes on Jesus pleases God. And I hope whatever reason you have for being here this morning, I hope number one on the list of reasons why I came to Harvest Niagara today, number one on the list is it pleases God when I'm here, okay? But second on that list is is also, and and on the list of just living my life, is I want to live a life that's fulfilled, I want to feel like my identity is set in Christ. I want to feel like I'm loved by him. I want to feel like I have a purpose in life. I want to feel that what I'm doing with my life is actually fulfilling, that my life is complete because I'm in Christ and have my eyes fixed on him. And so both of these things are so important in how this message plays out, pleasing God and feeling personally fulfilled in my life. And all of that comes, it's so Very simple. 
All of that comes if I will fix my eyes on Jesus. So that's where the text goes. So let's turn our attention to the text. This is Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Hebrews, by the way, is a sermon. It's a sermon transcript, and it can be read in about 50 minutes. So obviously the preordained length of a sermon. That's free. Um, Okay, here we go. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Well, here's, what, here's where we're going to go with this. To live a life, I think this is in your notes, to live a life that is both God-pleasing and personally fulfilling, that's what we've talked about, I must fix my eyes on Jesus. And then notice this first as the verse starts, as so many others have in the past. So many other people have fixed their eyes on Jesus and therefore pleased God and therefore lived these fulfilling lives. And we have them as an example for us. Verse 1 says, uh, therefore, therefore, building off of what we saw in, verse 11, in chapter 11, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, there's a big crowd of people cheering us on, watching us. They're spectators to our life as we, and the imagery in the verses is of this race being run, uh, an image for our lives. There are people kind of watching us, cheering us on, spectators to how we're living our lives. So who exactly is watching us? Who, Who is this? Who's in the grandstand? Well, again, context is king, interpreting the scriptures, relates to how everything else around it uh, relates to it. And so um, you look back to chapter 11 and you see a great definition. You can turn back there. In chapter 11, you see this definition of faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Okay, I don't, I don't have it yet. I'm, I'm hoping for it. I can't yet see it, but I know someday I will see it. That's the very essence of faith. And so I'm trying to lay hold of that, and I'm trying to live faithfully the entirety of my life with that goal, the hope of God, in front of me. And for these Old Testament saints, because if you know the chapter, you know all these Old Testament saints are now cited, and we know their stories. We could go back into the Old Testament, read every one of their stories. We get a little synopsis of it here. But every one of them was hoping for something they didn't have. They were trying to fix their eyes on, on something that was not yet realized. That's the essence of faith. They were waiting for the promise of Jesus, the promise of the Savior or the Messiah. And so you have all these uh, people that are mentioned here. Uh, Abel in chapter 4, Enoch, uh, verse 4, uh, Enoch in verse 5. You have Noah in verse 7. You have a little bit of an extended section on Abraham in verse 8. Um, Sarah is mentioned, his wife, in verse 11. Abraham, again, in verse 17, then Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. We have a little bit of a bigger section on Moses. Then verse 29, the people of Israel themselves are mentioned. Verse 31, kind of a surprising entry in the list of 
heroes of the faith is Rahab. She kind of had a challenging life and was not a Jew. So that's interesting. Verse 32, um, the preacher kind of runs out of time. Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel mentions all of them. There are many more Old Testament saints who are not mentioned here that could have been mentioned. And then verse 39 kind of makes the point again. All of these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. In other words, the coming of the Savior, the thing they were hoping for, it never actually happened for them. It was always just a hope. And by faith, they spent their entire life uh, pursuing it and reaching for it. They fixed their eyes on the promise of Jesus. And here they are now in the crowd, watching us, providing an example. Others have done this. So many others have gone on before. Not just the Old Testament saints. We can add that to, to that the New Testament saints. We can add to that people that we have known who have loved Jesus and who were in our lives, family members, friends, mentors, pastors, preachers, who contributed to our walk with Christ. They too now stand in the grandstands cheering us on. So I can fix my eyes on Jesus. I can lay hold of these things. Because so many others have in the past. And I need to do that. Notice this next. I need to do that by removing all obstacles to faith. I must, verse 1 continues, lay aside every weight, circle that word, and sin, circle that word, which clings so closely. Now, I want to remove all obstacles to faith. Now, let's think back again. Uh, we might uh, think that, you know, these Old Testament saints, well, they were the heroes of the faith. They were the champions of the faith. And we could mistakenly believe that they were, you know, kind of like perfect and pristine and, and so holy. Of course they lived for God. Of course they laid hold of the promises in that way. And yet in that list, without going through it in any depth, there's some pretty notorious characters. They have uh, people who were liars, who were known to be deceivers and cheaters. We have uh, people on this list who were murderers and adulterers. And, and Rahab was a prostitute. This is the list of people. If anybody's sitting here going like, I'd never measure up to that. Yes, you can. That's the great news. That when you realize the kind of people that exercise faith and fix their eyes on him and whom God uses and who live a fulfilled lives pleasing him, you realize that it is a motley crew of people. Harvest Niagara is a motley crew. Harvest Berry, too. In fact, I saw this line several months ago as I was preparing for a different message, and I've used it several times now to describe our church, and I think it's so fitting that we are a mob of misfits. That's who we are. 
That's the church. And that's what makes it so awesome that no one should be coming here today putting on this false front, this facade of holiness and righteousness. It's way better that we show up at the door authentic and transparent and vulnerable and stumbling in and crawling to our chairs and and just say, I need Jesus more than ever. That's what makes everybody feel welcome here. And it's awesome when that happens. And so, so this is for everybody, removing everybody, removing all obstacles to the faith because there are things that can get in the way. We've identified two of them here, and I'll get to them in specific in a moment, but it's so easy for us to become distracted by weights and by sins. In fact, distraction is a big problem in the 21st century, isn't it? In fact, how, we all know distraction because we all have cell phones. We all have smartphones. The number one cause of distraction in people's lives today are those blasted phones that we have in our pockets. Because we're constantly feeling the need. Oh, I got to check that email. I, I got a text from so-and-so. I, 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 I got I to look at Facebook. I got to uh, put a new picture on Instagram. I've got to do an Insta story. I've got to check Twitter. And we're constantly ignoring the people around us and ignoring other priorities to check the cell phone, to check the smartphone over and over in a day. It's becoming a massive problem. And then when you um, add to that, by the way, um, driving. So let's talk about distracted driving. A guy in Vancouver, this happened back on September 20th. There's a man driving a rental car through downtown Vancouver and he was stopped by a police officer at at an intersection who pulled him over and um, saw him using his cell phone while he was driving. So the officer pulled him over and uh, he was stopped at 2.22 in the afternoon and he was given a uh, $368 fine plus four demerit points. Eight minutes later at 2.30 p.m., six blocks down the road, another Vancouver police officer stopped him again, still using his cell phone, and wrote him a ticket for $368 and gave him four demerit points. Now in British Columbia dollars, that's, well, that's far away, I don't know. It's, uh, that's $736 in fines and $520, I don't know if we do this in Ontario, but $520 in fees for the eight demerit points, equaling uh, $1,256, or approximately the cost of an iPhone 10. So, um, here's what I think about that guy. I'm thinking if he had gone six more blocks and another Vancouver police officer had been on the side of the road, wouldn't you think that probably he would have got stopped again? Because I feel like we're not getting the message. And I feel like we're so distracted. And it's so dangerous for us to ever be looking at our, I won't get you to confess this, okay, but a lot of people, a lot of people text and drive. A lot of people check their phones and drive it, and it's so, so dangerous. For example, let me tell you, let me tell you this. If you're traveling at uh, 90 kilometers an hour, so most of, the, most of the county highways around here are 80 kilometers an hour, right? But we all know that the province means 90 when they put 80, correct? <laughs> Isn't that true? Like, we all drive that way, right? Oh, they really meant 90. So um, it's like a typo at the paint plant where they make the signs. <laughs> So, so we're all traveling 90 kilometers an hour down this uh, county highway, and, um, 
And if, you were to, if you're going 90 kilometers an hour and you, you look down at your phone for just five seconds, which is no time at all, five seconds, you look down at your phone, it is as if you have traveled the length of a football field blindfolded. That's how far you've traveled. Now that's frightening. On a two-lane highway, what does that mean? You're, you're going to veer off the highway. You're going you're to veer off to the right and hear the rumble strips or the gravel on the shoulder and maybe lose control on the gravel. Or you're going to drift across the yellow line into oncoming traffic. And, and best case scenario, you see it in time and you pull yourself back. But worst case scenario, it's a head-on collision and, and, and people die. Or maybe you go up over a sidewalk and you hit a pedestrian and, and it, listen, you, when we take our eyes off the road, this is the thing we're talking about. Public service announcement over. Don't text and drive. But we have a, a, more, a more pressing theological issue that we're making, that when we get our eyes off of Jesus Christ, when our eyes are not fixed on him, we drift out of our lane, we go into oncoming traffic, and we not only can hurt ourselves, but we hurt the people around us. When our eyes are not fixed on Jesus, we drag other people down, we hurt other people along the way. And the lesson for us is super clear. We need to fix our eyes firmly on Jesus Christ. Now, how do we do that? We need to get rid of the distractions, okay? We need to get rid of the obstacles to our faith. And the preacher here identifies two of them. You circled them, weight and sin. Now, weight here is not necessarily a bad thing. You have two things. One of them is a bad thing, obviously, sin. The other one is not a bad thing. It's just weight. It's just things that are in our lives that could possibly distract us from Jesus. These could be uh, good things uh, that are in our lives. And again, the whole illustration here is that of an athlete running. Now, this morning on the way over here for the 9 o'clock service, who's coming over here around 8 o'clock, and... Um, we were coming down uh, Glen Ridge Road, so we stayed up near the university, so we're coming down that road, and inexplicably, I don't understand this, minus 16 this morning when I was heading over here, and there are two people out running. <laughs> I do not understand this. So they're, they're running in this cold, cold weather, they're running, it's up Glen Ridge, they're running up in the cold in the morning, it makes no sense to me. And judging by the look on their faces, they were not having a good time. But, but every runner looks like that. So, so here they are, they're running, and they're, they're um, dressed, I suppose, appropriate to the weather in the sense that they knew it was cold out, so they were, f for the most part, covered up, but still not carrying anything extra. They didn't have backpacks on. They, they weren't carrying any packages in their hands. They didn't have anything extra. They, they were just wearing a minimum amount of clothing that they could wear given uh, the circumstances of the weather, and that's the way you run. You run without any extra weight, even if that extra weight is good things. If you look at the Olympics or any track and field competition, you'll see that the people who are running in those events, they're down to really a bare minimum. The runners, sprinters' shoes, runners' shoes are pretty minimum and, and they'll wear the least amount of shorts or tops that they could possibly wear. That's because they don't want any weight to hinder them. Now, the preacher of the book of Hebrews back in the first century, he's thinking back to the ancient Olympic games when the runners actually ran Say the word for me. I just don't want to say it. Naked. naked. They ran naked. Oh, I did want to say it. Sorry. <laughs> See, here's the funny thing is people who weren't even listening to the sermon are listening now because I, <laughs> did he say naked? He did. 
So they ran naked because they didn't want anything to hinder them. Now, again, we're saying that weight is a good thing. How many people would agree clothes are a good thing? How many people didn't vote on that? <laughs> so, so clothes are a good thing, but when you're running the race, you want to set aside some good things so that you're not hindered in running your race. That's the point he wants to make. Sometimes there are good things in our lives awesome things that God gives to us that can end up being a distraction to our actual run, our walk, our life in Christ. A couple of examples. A leisure activity, sport that you're, a, that you're participating in, a hobby that you have, some kind of leisure thing that you do with friends or you do on your own. You have some skill for it. You enjoy doing it. It's a lot of fun for you. It's a bit of a Sabbath. It's a breakaway from your work and other things that you do, and you really enjoy doing it. And, and God would not begrudge you doing that. He wants us to have rest and Sabbath. He wants us to enjoy life to the full. He's provided this earth so that we can enjoy it. So all of that is awesome, but we each need to do an individual audit on these things and go back and say, how much of my time, how much of my energy, how much of my attention, how much of my financial resources are going into this thing, and does that impact in any way my, my walk with Christ, my ability to serve him, the mission I'm on, does it hinder my marriage, does it hinder my most vital relationships that God has given to me? Okay, I need to audit that, because even a good thing like sports or leisure or a hobby, can become a weight to running my race with endurance. Or, let's get more personal, relationships, friendships. God wants us to have close friendships. God wants us to be in great marriages. God established marriage. It's going to be the most awesome relationship you ever have. If you're in an awesome marriage, that's a gift from God. There'll be nothing like it in your life. God gives you children. They're awesome. He says they're a heritage from the Lord. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. Children are awesome. I have heard rumors grandchildren are better <laughs> than children. And I'm looking forward to finding that out. But even relationships can get in the way of our walk with Christ, our run, our ability to run with endurance where we can take any person in our life, any relationship, and make that an idol and begin worshiping that, and that's more important to me than Jesus. And so it becomes a weight to us, and we need to get everything in its proper perspective and place in our lives. And so all of that to say the first obstacle or distraction, the weight can be good things, but we don't want them to hinder our walk with him. And then the second obstacle or distraction you'll notice here is uh, sin. And uh, maybe you're thinking right now, hey, why don't you just leave that for the local guys, Todd? You don't need to come down here and preach to us about sin. And um, in actual fact, I do because uh, Harvest Berry, Harvest Niagara have the same values. We don't skip any parts of the scripture and sin is mentioned here. So I have to, I have to bring it up. We have to talk about it. Because sin obviously can be a hindrance to our running the race with endurance. If our eyes are fixed on Jesus Christ, when this happens and we say, I'm going to commit to this, I'm going to fix my eyes on him. What that does for us is it makes so obvious our sin. You can't look at Jesus and not realize the massive chasm that exists between us and him as a result of our sin. 
The more you look at him, the more you realize, you you realize all kinds of things about him, but you're going to see his holiness. You're going to see his perfection and his righteousness. And you're going to realize how far short of the mark you really fall. I mean, think about Isaiah. This guy had it going on. He's a prophet of God, and, and, and God called him to this awesome ministry of proclaiming the word of God at a great time in Israel's history. God takes this man who's positioned among the kings, the influence makers of the nation. God takes him into the throne room, a privilege that only a very few are given. And when he gets into the throne room of God, this prophet of God, Isaiah 6, 5 says that he fell on his face as though dead. And he said, woe is me. He said, I'm lost. I'm, I'm undone, one translation says. Literally, the word says that I'm coming apart at the seams. That in, in the presence of God and his holiness, I, uh, my life is just flying to pieces. And he says, Why? I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of glory. And that's, that's where we get to when we fix our eyes on Jesus. And increasingly, the longer you walk with him, the longer you live your life for him, the more and more you realize that. Not less, more. And the cool thing is that not only does the fixing my eyes on Jesus point out the sin and the gap between me and God, but it provides the antidote to it, the solution. Because Jesus himself is the one who fills the gap. The blood of Jesus Christ shed is the very thing that cleanses me of my sin and brings me into the presence of God and able to stand before him. When we get our eyes on Jesus, we find grace and we find forgiveness and we find the hope that we're trying to lay our hands on that is not yet realized in our salvation. And so you can see what we're doing here. We're building a statement to live a life that is both God-pleasing and personally fulfilling. I must fix my eyes on Jesus as so many others have in the past by removing all obstacles uh, to faith And we do all of this, notice, while persevering through all circumstances. While persevering through all circumstances. And this is what can trip up so many people when it comes to matters of faith. We we get this idea that, that as a follower of Christ, I'm going to get a pass on hardship. See, Jesus solves our eternal problem. He solves the problem of sin, but we still face having to live in this sin-sickened world that continues to throw stuff at us, whether we're a follower of Christ or not. We don't get a pass as the followers of Christ on the life is hard part. Just because we committed our life to Christ, just because we're following Christ, just because we give of our finances to Christ, just because we serve him in a ministry, just because we tell other people about him does not give us a pass. We still live in the same world, all the same pressures, all the same heartaches. And we have to persevere through all of it. Verse one continues, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. 
We have to persevere. Now, this wouldn't even be in the preacher's sermon. It wouldn't even be in the Bible. If by accepting Christ, only a smooth road were in front of you. But because it's not that way, we need these constant exhortations to keep going. Endure, persevere, don't let up. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Now again, so we get this. The, the picture all the way through is of a race. He's got the ancient Olympics in mind. Now he's got an endurance race in mind. So we're not talking about sprints. We're really talking about the marathon. Now, I've already kind of tipped my hand about how I feel about running. And everything I know about running, I read. <laughs> okay, so um, anybody here ever run a marathon? Anybody here? You've run a marathon. You're the only one in the room. There was one in the last service too, so together you're two in this entire church. And there's a reason for that because, listen, it's an endurance race. And most people are like, yeah, I'm doing that. I mean, I'm 53. I don't even remember the last time I ran at all, let alone 26 and some miles, 42 uh, kilometers, which is what a marathon is. And... Um, and so, obviously, that's an endurance race. You just have to keep doing it, step after step, keep doing it until you've reached the finish line 26 miles later. But I, I want to get a better picture, even, of what this endurance is really like. So I had in my mind the steeplechase. How many people know what the steeplechase is? You, you've seen a steeplechase race. Very few of you. And you only ever see this at the Olympics, but the steeplechase is 3,000 meters, so three kilometers. You run it in the Olympic Stadium around the oval. But every once in a while, what happens is they run you off the oval just a little bit, and off on the either on the inside track or the outside track, there will be... Um, a, a large hurdle, not like the sprint hurdles, but a larger, taller hurdle. It's, um, I think, a four by four or a six by six on top of it. So, and it's, it's solid, it's not gonna tip over. And everybody goes over the same one. So they run you off the track, everybody jumps this big hurdle. And then when you jump over the hurdle, you land in, anybody know? You land in water. There's a pit of water on the other side of the hurdle. And it's possible First time around, when you have enough energy, it's possible you might be able to clear the water, but probably not. And certainly by your second or third time around, you're not clearing the water. You're going right into the water. So now you're wet and, and it's miserable and you've jumped down and most people don't even hurdle the hurdle. They jump on top of it and jump down into it. And the problem with the steeplechase is because everybody's using the same hurdle and you're falling into a pit that by the way is inclined, so it's deeper right where the hurdle is. And then you run up a ramp through water but very often, the runners will trip. They'll fall face first into the water, and then what happens is their fellow runners will jump on top of them while they're in the water. But this is ridiculous. I mean, I don't understand. I don't have a category for this. So this, to me, now is getting closer to life and the kind of endurance required because how many people know this to be true? It's never just one trial. Isn't it true? It's never just one Often trials compound. Now, it's not bad enough I'm going through one thing, but I got like three things going on right now. It's not bad enough I'm running. It's not bad enough I have to hurdle something. It's not bad enough that I've fallen into water. Now someone's jumping on my head. Does that sound closer to your life? Run the race with endurance. You got to keep going. Fix your eyes on Jesus. I got to get to the finish line. That's where the hope is. 
If the steeplechase doesn't do it for you, how about this one? Um, the triathlon. Okay, and the granddaddy of the tri- triathlons is the Ironman. Okay, I wrote this down. This is dumb. Three, you, you all agree with me. So three, 3.86 kilometer swim, four kilometer swim. Swim in four kilometers, that's the start of it. But it's a triathlon. Then you're gonna bike 180 kilometers. That's like from here, to, I said from here to London, I think probably from here to London. You're gonna bike that. Then, if you're done those two things, you get to run a full marathon, 42 kilometer run. Okay, that's the Ironman. Okay, so... Um, This, this isn't like all the trials piling up at the same time, but this is like the length and span of my life. At some point, everybody thinks that they're going to get a breather in life. It's, it's going to get easy when. It's going to be easier when. Okay? You spend your entire childhood wanting one thing. I can't wait to be an adult. And then you become an adult, and all you can think about is when you were a kid. It was so much easier back then. Mom and dad fed me. I, had a, uh, I didn't have to do anything. They, I just, it was awesome. And we think about the carefree days of childhood. You get through your childhood, you go into your teenage years, you get out of that. You, you, you got to en- endure college and it's who am I going to marry and where am I going to work and where am I going to live and all the pressures of all of that. And you finally find the person, if, it is, if it's the right person, even if it's the right person, marriage has an adjustment period to it. And then you think kids are going to solve that. So you start having kids and then you're up to your eyeballs in diapers and, and you have enough kids. You're not, you don't even care what they eat. They found Cheerios under the couch. Great. <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. And, and, and parents in those years, in these diaper changing years, they think this is the worst period of life that they could possibly go through. Take it from a guy with gray hair. That's the easy stage. You do homework with your kids through those grade school years and you think you should be getting the A on that Bristol board project that you did and you get them through high school, which seems insane, and then they become adults and you're just trying to get your kids into adulthood. It's so hard. And, uh, and you know, my kids, um, we have three kids in their 20s. One is married, two are engaged, getting married this uh, winter and spring. And our youngest, who's 21, and getting married in May, he said, Dad, his name is Luke. He said, Dad, we don't need you very often, but when we need you, it's big. And that has proven true. So you finally get your kids out, and they start having families of their own, and then your own parents are getting older, and they start acting like children. <laughs> Both my parents and Cheryl's parents are at our home church. Not something I could say in that church, but I'm so happy to be here this morning. <laughs> If any of you know them, I will deny everything, okay? So, so there are no breaks. It's a triathlon. You swim, you swim, you swim against the waves and the chop of all the other swimmers around you who are creating turbulence, and you get out of the water, and you're dead tired, and you're wet, and you change your clothes, and you throw on your shoes, and you start biking, and you bike, and you bike, and bike until you're almost dead, and on roads, and it's dangerous, and up hills and down. And when you finish, they just scream at you, run, 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 and it isn't over till you hit the finish line. That's where the hope is. And all the way, you've got to keep your eyes fixed 
on Him. You have to persevere through all circumstances. And it's going to take a toll. It's a test of endurance. That's life. And, and if we're going after personal fulfillment in life, it's never going to be better for you if what you think before God is that somehow he's dealt you a bad hand or that God is out to get you. Why is life so hard for me? Why am I being forced to run? What, why do I have to go over this hurdle? Why are people jumping on my head? Why is there never a break? And you're shaking your fist at God. You're never going to please him. And you're not going to get to a place of personal fulfillment if that's what you think. But instead we have to be in this place where we understand God has got a perfect plan and I fit into that somehow. It's a big global universal plan and everybody fits into it. And I need to play my part in that and I need to receive the things that God is putting into my life and I need to live my life by grace and with faith in him that he has it all perfectly worked out. Fulfillment comes when you recognize God is choosing what's best for you and loving you through it. Fulfillment comes when you have faith to believe, Romans 8, 28, that for those who love God, all things work together for good. And when you have that kind of faith, you will persevere through every circumstance. And all the while, notice this next, laser-focused, fully embracing Him as my Savior. Verse 2, this is the key phrase to this whole message, looking to Jesus, or again, NIV, fixing our eyes on Jesus, who is the one and only Savior. I'm fully embracing him as my Savior. Verse 2 continues, it says he's the founder of our faith. His coming to earth in flesh and identifying with us in our humanity and facing all the temptations that we face and yet without sin, facing uh, condemnation and crucifixion and giving his life on the cross for us and then being raised by the power of the Holy Spirit to new life. He is the founder of our faith. He did all of that so that we could lay hold of these things so that we could persevere to the end having hope in him. He defeated sin and death. And we need to latch on to that. He's the founder of our faith. He's the Savior, but he's also my Lord. The second descriptor identifies him as the perfecter of our faith. That is to say he's in control of everything. He is king of kings. He is sovereign over absolutely everything. And because he is sovereign and in control, he will bring everything to completion. He will make everything perfect in his time. That's his plan. The day is coming when our faith will be made sight. We'll understand everything. Right now we don't have that advantage, but please be assured everything in the world and in the universe is rolling out exactly as God intends. There's not a single thing happening in the world today, not a single thing happening in your life that God is surprised by. God, God was not surprised when Donald Trump was elected president of the United States. 
nor was he surprised by anything Trump said last week as he added to the list of odd things that he says. God is not surprised that Vladimir Putin is the Russian president. God is not surprised or taken aback in any way that what's his name is the North Korea guy. He's not alarmed. God is not alarmed by the missiles. God is not, is not all of a sudden panicking because there's tension between the United States and North Korea. None of this is taking God by surprise. God is not out of control. The same is true for each of our lives. We think it's spinning out of control. And does God see this? Does he know what's going on? Of course he does. He's Lord. He's bringing everything to perfection, to completion. And we can rest in his plan for us and trust our lives to him completely. So he's my Savior, he's my Lord. I need to embrace him as such. And then notice this, he's my example. Not only do we have this great cloud of witnesses, but better, we have Jesus. Okay, notice what he did. For the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. So for the joy that was set before him, for the hope that was before him, that you and I would become followers of Christ, that, that we would become sons and daughters of the king and be in the kingdom with him, that, that he would please the father by fulfilling his mission. That's what was before Jesus, but to get there, he had to despise the shame of the cross, endure the cross. We're being asked to endure, Jesus endured. We're being asked to fix our eyes on Jesus. Jesus fixed his eyes on the Father. He's asking us to do exactly what he did. He looked past the immediate crushing circumstances of the cross. And we need to follow that example and look past the immediate crushing circumstances of our own lives. We need to look beyond any shame and the, the horror of living our lives down here. And we need to follow his example. But a caution here, the order is very important. I'm going to fully embrace him as Savior and as Lord before I embrace him as example, it's awesome to have Jesus as our example. It's awesome to say, I'm seeking to learn from Jesus and be like him, but you can't be like him until he is first your savior and your Lord. The example that Jesus is, is a byproduct of his lordship and him being our savior. C.S. Lewis actually said this best. This is from Mere Christianity. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. 
But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, and he did not intend to. Don't fall into the error of thinking that following Jesus' teaching and example is a nice positive way to live as if Jesus is just another guru among a long list of gurus. But come here knowing that you are a sinner in need of a savior. That you have to trust someone who has the plan fully in mind. That you have no ability to actually reach God on your own. Come broken and throw yourself at Jesus' feet and receive the grace and forgiveness and the strength that he provides to endure throughout this race. Put on his own righteousness. Believe that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior and only then, once you've done that, model your life after his. Embrace him as Savior, Lord, example, and then finally uh, declare this, Jesus is my God. Notice the last phrase, he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And I make no defense here for the fact that Jesus is the problem in our churches. Jesus is the problem. And by problem, I put that in quotes, uh, by problem I mean he is the issue that people have with us. He's the dividing line. He's the difference in every single conversation. His uniqueness among small s saviors and small g gods is what causes us the issues that we face. It's what gets people bent out of shape. It's why somebody would come to the church interested in faith, but not quite there, and would say, I'm a little uncomfortable with how freely you speak of Jesus. But let us never waver in speaking about Jesus in this way. And let's fix our eyes on him. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's bow for prayer. Father, um, again, it is a great privilege for us to be um, in this place, an incredible privilege for us to have your word open and to be able to look at it uh, together. And to have your Holy Spirit work in each one of our lives in the very individual way that that needs to happen. So many different people with so many different things going on in their lives and things that we all need to hear. So God, I pray first of all for those in the room who maybe don't yet have a relationship with you, who maybe are still a little uncomfortable with how freely we talk about you. And I pray God that today would be their day that they would in this moment before they leave this place turn their life over to Jesus Christ to find the forgiveness of sins, and then to begin this race. And Father, I pray for all in the room, many of us who love the Lord and who have declared our commitment to follow Jesus. And yet, Father, so easy we would confess in this moment to get our eyes off Jesus and to look at the things around us, to be consumed with sin, to, to be giving our lives to things that don't matter really in the eternal sense of that. And so, Father, I pray that we would recommit ourselves in this moment to fixing our eyes on Jesus. 351 more days left in this year. I pray, God, that we would not already be discouraged, but, Father, we would fix our eyes firmly on Jesus and run this race with endurance. Thank you, Father, for hearing this prayer and for your 
grace toward us and your love that's so evident. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.